Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Sandpaper Lullaby Podcast, brought to you by Revelation Records. Check out Rev's new Spotify playlist series, where they tap friends and families to create custom playlists for your listening enjoyment. Delve into the midst of Scott Vogel, Steve Aoki, comedian Jonah Ray, and many others for a good time. Go to Revelation Records on Spotify. That's where it's at. Searching for a light? You've found it. And as always, enjoy Sandpaper Lullaby. Was it something that you were taking in where you're like, holy crap, like, there's people in Boston who play this stuff, there's yeah. people in Detroit, there's people, you know. Yeah, it did, and it was it was really, uh, it was amazing that mm-hmm. you would go someplace and it would be, oh my God, they're doing, they're the same people as us. Mm-hmm. They're doing this, the negative approach people, necros, like, mm-hmm. those guys are doing the exact same thing, and they have the same thing, like, the same kind of size of scene, mm-hmm. and... Uh, the uh, it was it was really heartening. I mean, I, I don't know. I wasn't trying to expand the brand. Yeah. I mean, I was a kid and I liked playing music and I mm. love punk rock and mm. I love going to punk rock shows. I like going to them, playing them, all kind of the same to me. Yeah. That was our guest this week on the Sandpaper Lullaby podcast, a man who I almost feel like an idiot giving any introduction to, Brian Baker. In the past 40 years, Brian has been a member of Minor Threat, Government Issue, Dag Nasty, and Bad Religion, plus he's considered one of the main architects in the sound of American hardcore punk. At this stage in the game, I'm sure many of you feel Brian's history has been covered, but you probably don't know just how serendipitous Brian's path to punk stardom actually was. Today we will show you how Brian exemplifies one of the most near and dear punk traditions, not giving a shit. With a simple love of music and willingness to follow his heart, Brian would unknowingly play an essential part in forming what we know as punk today. We got to catch up with Brian near his new home of Asbury Park, where we dug into his musical journey, starting with his happenstance interactions in Washington, D.C. that would result in building one of America's first real hardcore scenes. Never heard anybody uh, ask you this, or maybe I just wasn't paying attention. What was the initial initial reason you picked up a guitar as a kid? Well, uh, I had my parents were into music, mm-hmm. and my father he was a uh, producer of news for the local CBS station in Washington D.C. So he was already kind of on that artistic side, and he used to bring home free promo records because they would send like all the labels would send promos out and I guess at that time the list would be you know a local TV station which Mm -hmm. it kind of makes sense because they have an archive and also there's a radio station attached to it so 
dad was always bringing home records mm -hmm. and my parents had really you know they had cool stuff they liked the stones and mm -hmm. they liked the band and they loved the beatles and unfortunately they liked eric clapton but you know i mean <laughs> whose parents are perfect uh, uh yeah um yeah. but i had access to all this music and uh just i i just thought guitar was cool george harrison was uh my favorite beetle mm -hmm. and we shared a birthday mm -hmm. uh okay. we still do but he's dead but yeah. i don't know how you really how uh, how that gauges yeah, yeah, yeah we share a birthday yeah um and basically what happened was uh i went to a field day yeah. that my school would hold every year at the end of the year mm -hmm. we had a thing called field day it was georgetown day school it would basically be just sort of sack races and picnics yeah. and kind of families hanging out in the park. And when I was, I believe, seven, they had a live band. You know, to me, it was grown-ups. It was probably guys in ninth grade yeah. and playing covers. And I was absolutely riveted to the spot in front of them. I didn't leave. Mm -hmm. I saw them setting up their equipment. I stayed there apparently the whole time. Like, I would not participate mm -hmm. in, you know, the egg throw or you yeah. know the native american disparagement or whatever the whatever <laughs> 70s yeah. crap yeah, yeah exactly yeah, they yeah, were yeah. doing i think it was one of those it's just i i'm sure what happened was i want a guitar can i have a guitar mm. can i have a guitar i want a guitar yeah. i really like a guitar can i have a guitar can mm. i and i'm sure that that's what i did because mm. that would have been uh that would have been my style and my parents eventually they, so this would have been the end of the school year and uh so that puts it in like june and Christmas, mm. I got a guitar, an acoustic guitar. Brian's experience at his school's field day, as well as his brand new guitar, definitely had him on the right path to becoming a musician. But it didn't hurt that his first exposure to an actual rock concert resulted in an experience that would endear nearly anyone into a life of live music. You moved to Michigan at some point? I right? went to Michigan. My dad got a new job in Michigan. So mm -hmm. I, I left Washington after seventh grade mm -hmm. and I went to Michigan for eighth grade and half of ninth grade. The school I went to, like I was a new kid coming into this big school. It was called University Liggett preparatory and it was a you wear like a you had to wear a uniform mm -hmm. i think i had my choice of colors of shirts but i think you had to wear yes, there was a specific you yeah. know preppy handbook type yeah. of uniform and i didn't really fit in at all yeah. i don't even know how i got in the school i think it was part of when my dad took this job they said okay well we'll pay for your kid's school mm. and i think there was a lot of uh, bonuses thrown at my dad to make it to get him to go to detroit so I wound up in this school and I was a freak and I just found the other people who played music. And there were some of us and we formed a band, a cover band, mm -hmm. almost immediately. And we were all kind of the, the not cool kids. And we did cheap trick covers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sure we played some Ted Nugent, which, yeah, of course, in retrospect, yeah. you know, hey. You know. <laughs> who's, who's to know? So that's how I wound up. Uh, I was in this cover band, and I don't know how many times we played at the school, uh, played like a school dance and a couple of like backyard parties, mm -hmm. some like friends of the drummer's dad. Mm -hmm. uh, the drummer's father owned uh, 
a restaurant uh, called Joe Muir's, M-U-E-R, seafood restaurant. Uh, and that, at the time, it was a really nice high-end seafood place in downtown Detroit mm. that, uh, that the Santana people, I guess, had been going to Mm. Uh, regularly. Mm. And now that I'm a touring musician, I mean, like, I know I always go to the Red Iguana in mm. Salt Lake City yeah. for Mexican food every time I'm there. Mm. And I've been going there for 25 years. Yeah. I think this is what that was. Yeah. And so they knew, uh, they knew uh, Billy was the drummer. They knew Billy's dad. Mm. And they just gave us backstage passes mm. um, to go see Santana. And to make a long story short, they were really cool. And... Um, they wound up putting Billy on bongos and they put a guitar around me and mm. put me out on stage during yeah. the encore at Cobo Hall in Detroit. And I jammed with Santana. Yeah. And but, so, yeah, crazy. It was my it was my first concert, wow. my first like yeah. rock concert. That's yeah. incredible. Upon returning to D.C., Brian could obviously see signs of what would become a seminal hardcore scene. Luckily for him. He had just the right mix of cred and lack of experience to join what would become a pioneering hardcore group. A decision, as Brian would put it, made by default. My mom and dad split up and my mom took me back to DC mm -hmm. and I went back to Georgetown Day School. In the interim, Everyone had discovered punk rock, mm. and I didn't know about it. Mm. So I showed up in like a fog hat shirt <laughs> with shoulder-length hair yeah. and those those glasses you see in the yeah. early Minor Threat pictures. Yeah. Like, hey, what's up, man? And uh, everyone was really punk. Yeah. And um, and so immediately I decided that I would do my best to fit in with the outcasts. Yeah. Um, and kinda, did, yeah. And, and did so. It's kind of interesting in the way that like you come back and everybody's into punk, like, was it, like, good majority? Like, was it all the people that you were friends with prior no, to leaving? But it would, no, I mean, not everybody. It was still a minority, but it was, there were a number of kids, let's say there were probably 10 people who were at, throughout the grades that were in, in the upper school that were into it. And mm -hmm. Michael Hampton and Guy, of course, um, uh, were into it. And just a number of other uh, people who may not have become, you know, that you wouldn't know, yeah. but people were in the scene. Uh, Dante uh, Ferrando, oh, yeah. who owns the Black Cat in mm -hmm. D.C. and has owned that club, he's been like a huge booster of local music in D.C. forever. And he was in Grey Matter yeah. and Iron Cross. Iron Cross. Yep. He went to school with me, too. Yeah. And Mark Haggerty, who was in Iron Cross. Yeah. And I think Grey, Grey Matter, Matter, too. Yes. Um, yeah. and, they were uh, both in the grade below me. Severin, or is that it? Yeah, yeah, I yeah, think, so. I, think yeah. so. I mean, these... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry I totally spaced on those guys went to GDS, too. It's yeah. like, um, so that was kind of our, you know, uh, and it was a small school. Mm -hmm. Like, my graduating class might have been 30 people. So mm -hmm. the punk to non-punk ratio was actually strong enough, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, to, to establish your own space in the, mm -hmm. uh, in the dining area. Gotcha. Without fear of attack. <laughs> Brutal attack. Come back to D.C., Everybody's kind of getting into punk with all your friends. Yeah. You know, when does it go into playing punk or playing music? Um, well, I mean, I went back to D.C. and I went to the second half of ninth grade, which means that I would have been in there like February of 1980. By the end of that year, I was in Minor Threat. We 
And I've said this many times, but I mean, the fact is, is that I kind of was like, I believe I was a default choice because I think I was the only person who played an instrument mm -hmm. who was punk, who wasn't in a band already. Mm -hmm. And I think also that, uh, that the Teen Idols were breaking up and I think that Ian specifically wanted to kind of break out and get some new people in. Mm -hmm. And Lyle was also a new person. Um, you know, mm -hmm. he was, uh, Lyle was in a, briefly in a band called The Extorts with Michael Hampton. Mm -hmm. that, that I think they played one show. Mm -hmm. I, I, I went to it. Yeah, there's Maybe. a picture of it in a like, band in DC. Yeah. 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 We were second wave of mm -hmm. DC. Um, yeah, it's hard to say punk because there's if, the wave thing is difficult because there were people who yeah. were into punk rock in 77 and 76 yeah. in DC, but we didn't know them. We called them old people. Yeah. And we didn't understand. And they had funny glasses. Like the Slicky and they, Boys and Yeah, and it was a different yeah. scene. And they yeah. played places where kids couldn't go. Yeah. And it just really wasn't part of my consciousness. Hmm. As far as the, the first line of like what we would call now retroactively hardcore kids, which yeah. would be the Mackays and people in Teen Idols and Henry and all that, mm -hmm. we were the next. We were second. Yeah. Um, they were a little older than we were. Mm. And uh, so I really think that was it. I mean, there really there weren't a lot of people interested in this kind of music. Yeah. And I went to school with Lyle, and I could play an instrument. I never played bass, but mm -hmm. I played guitar, and that's mm -hmm. kind of close. Yeah. And I found out, you know, not to play chords on the bass yeah. when I went to rehearsal. <laughs> I learned that that, which bass. is silly, because Daryl Jennifer has made a great career yeah, out of true. playing chords. So I don't know why they held me back, yeah. but um, yeah. that's how it happened. Yeah. And things, I mean, when you look back on it now, things did move very quickly. I mean, you oh, were yeah. a band by December of eighty. Say so. Yeah, yeah. and then. Seven, I would say that first EP's out by summer of 81. Might have even been there. Fall 81? I, yeah, I don't know. I'm so yeah. bad with, I'm bad with these specific timelines. But I do know, I do believe our first, our first show at a club might have been like December, the early first week in December at DC Space. Yeah. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. So where am I? There's no place like home. Uh, minor Threat broke up, and it's exactly that. We were just, uh, we're teenagers. Yeah. We're stupid. You know, and like no one really teenagers. thought, I mean, obviously we're proud of being in the band, but yeah. it wasn't thinking about it as a, was this going to be our job? Yeah. You know, that's crazy. Yeah. It was just a, it was a fun thing we did. Yeah. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. So where am I? I think the one good thing Ian has said before is that it's almost accidental that like minor threat is is like uh, unimpeachable in the way that like we broke up before we could make the bad record or like the yeah. record, the record that like who jeez yeah. like the whatever the. Yeah. Uh, bad, mature record or yeah. whatever. And, and to Ian's credit, I think that some of the things that Lyle and Jeff and I were working on in the basement of Discord House um, would have wound up being that because we really, you know, that was kind of part of the split. Well, that's interesting you say that, sir. Yes. Because last night I heard for the first time the 400 demo. You did? <laughs> yes. Yeah.
After the breakup of Minor Threat, Brian was searching for a new way to keep playing music, which included donning a loincloth to play in the Meat Men with the Dutch Hercules himself, Tesco V. But he was looking to explore outside of the already restricting hardcore format. The band The 400 was his short-lived departure out of that world. But the, the stuff we were doing that we were trying to make into the third minor threat record wasn't nearly as uh, as alarm and U2 based as the 400. <laughs> that was all I was thinking the whole time right. I was listening I, to I it. I think, yeah. actually, I, I don't think we'd even, uh, yeah, I, I, you'd have to look and Who's see. Who's singing on that? That's Ray Hare from Deadline. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because I was like, who is it? Like, I was thinking maybe it was Lyle trying to sing. No, but he like, looked oh. a little like Lyle, but no, oh, he was, and Deadline, uh, I guess they were best. They were on a couple of the cops. Deadline or the last band on Flex Your Head. Right. Guy put out that one-sided. And their demo. Uh, Deadline. Brendan played drums Candy. in Deadline. Yeah. Um, a guy named Terry played guitar. I think. No, Terry was the bass player. See, this is how bad I am. Yeah. But yeah, so we had Ray sing. Yeah. Um, and that might have happened. Yeah, dude, I just can't tell you. Because also there's Meat Men <laughs> well, involved here, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically, like... It's a big uh, There's a cluster. whole big thing yeah, going yeah. on. Um, but nonetheless, the 400 was sort of... Was it a conscious effort to say, well, this is what this is what's happening right now. Let's try no. to get onto that. Or that was what you were actually... Like, that's what... That was what you wanted to do. We... That sounded like the music that we liked at the time and Ray was a uh, Ray's a very smart man and he was much better read than we were and mm. he was very esoteric in his in his stuff I mean he I think he was a poet and he was influenced by a lot of things that I didn't know about so Ray was kind of there's this theatrical aspect to Ray's vocals let's get an artsy guy yeah, yeah. Um, and we it wasn't like I mean basically the same thing like all DC hardcore stuff like oh we're gonna form another band and we want to play like kind of you know, not hardcore music. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to pick somebody who hangs out at the 930 Club with us. It's right. like you still are picking through the hardcore people yeah. because that's your family. Yeah. And so it's like, Ray's like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. And once you decide that, you're not auditioning people, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like, this is how it's going to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was certainly, at that, up till that point, was the DC tradition. Yeah. You just throw the whole band away if one yeah. member leaves. Yeah. It was a big thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And cut a lot of careers short. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the 400 was, uh, I mean, I remember I had a Telecaster, mm -hmm. which was a weird guitar for me to play. And I just liked, uh, I really wanted like mid-tempo stuff with a bass line, yeah. like a steady bass line. It was a, uh, a band we played, I don't know, we opened for The Replacements mm -hmm. um, on their, on the Let It Be tour, All right. which is pretty cool. Yeah. And that's kind of what we were into, like yeah. a little more Husker Du, and you know, I think we just wanted to be grown-ups, yeah. and we yet we were 21. Is it Eric? Playing drums or no? Eric, I believe Eric From was Double playing o. drums, and he was in Meat Men too. Yeah, I was gonna say. So it's almost like it yeah. was sort of the Meat Men without Tesco in some weird way. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, if if I can put some timeline to it, I think that this is what's up. 
I know that Lyle and I, when, when Minor Threat was breaking up, Lyle and I's grand plan is that we were going to play with Glenn Danzig and Chuck Biscuits and Graham from Negative Approach. Mm. And ha whatever happened with that, we wound up playing with Glenn, Graham, Lyle and myself, but no Chuck Biscuits, we got Eric. Yeah. And then in a very short amount of time, I believe that Glenn realized that he probably didn't need to be coming to D.C. and fucking around with these children. <laughs> and he was certainly capable of pursuing Getting, his yeah. own things his own way. Yeah. And so he kind of just, that just kind of, it wasn't like anyone called and said, like, it's fucking over. <laughs> like, nobody did anything. It was just like, okay, yeah. um, I, you know, we just stopped practicing. And Lyle was kind of surreptitiously going up to New York. Yeah. And that's, I think, because Lyle's he on the... He played the first he's on Sam the, Han show. He played yeah, the yeah. first show, and Lyle's on that first yeah. record. Um, but uh, also, Lyle and Graham and I and Eric were in The Meat Men. Yeah. And The 400. Mm -hmm. Lyle was in The 400, too, right? You would know better than me. <laughs> I, I think it's entirely possible that, yeah, Lyle. Lyle yeah. is in the 400. Yeah, because that's why I thought maybe he was you singing. It could easily be uh, the same people as the Meat Men, but with Ray singing. I really, I'd have yeah. to ask somebody. I have to call Ian, because he yeah. knows everything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's what that was. So we're doing it all at the same time. And yeah. I'm going, I'm trying to go to college. Right. Uh, and I'm a motorcycle courier. And yeah. it's just all of this. This is all... It's all happening. You yeah. know, in retrospect, it seems somewhat significant to people who are students of American hardcore. Yeah. But at the time, it was just like, we're just fucking around. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we didn't drink yet, so we had a lot of time on our hands. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that yeah. was, you know, I just around. get a funny visual of, like, if the 400 and the Meat Men play on the same bill, and you just go backstage and put on a fucking fur vest. Yeah. <laughs> walk back out. Yeah. But. Like, let me take off my glasses, yeah. my sensitive wear, yeah, put on my vest. Here we go. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like, the, I think the Meat Men, I don't know, obviously the Meat Men is something you cannot explain to anybody in the present day, I think. True. <laughs> in the way of like... It was performance art and it was Tesco V's cabaret. Yeah. And all that goes with that. Yeah. And Tesco V is an impresario and, a, you know, a legend. Yeah. And he is, uh, you know, he's from a different generation and the meat men was always a we were just doing it to we were like helping tesco out like yeah. i wasn't i'm in the meat men yeah french people suck <laughs> like I, I wasn't that it was like yeah we'll play a show because it's still playing shows and yeah. of, of you know the sam hain thing didn't happen and the 400 weren't very good and people weren't really very excited about it mm. but the meat men still could play wilson center and everybody yeah. would come and i'm like I want to play the Wilson Center and have yeah. everybody come. Yeah. Although Brian was craving to get back to his hard rock roots, he returned back to the American hardcore scene more honed in his craft and holding a wider array of influences. And what a surprise. The band he formed during that time was yet another essential DC hardcore band. Dag Nasty.
Um, so, in regards to Dagnasty, again, what was this sort of... Was there a game plan there in regards to... Yeah. Because when I... Again, again, when I first heard that record, even as being like 14 or 15, I took it as, you know, well, maybe you being like, everybody wants Minor Threat. Let's give them Minor Threat. <laughs> I think it was... Uh, I am not enjoying college. Mm-hmm. Um, I have songs and I want to form a band that can tour and I want to get out of here and I want to take music seriously Mm -hmm. and how am I going to do that all right well um, Minor Threat is still important to people and so I think that I should be playing to people who like Minor Threat and so I want to play uh, I wanted to be friendly to that, but the music I was writing was not exclusively like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Diagnosis kind of weird, yeah. and uh, it was—I uh, mean, it was conscious in the sense of like, okay, we need to go play punk shows again. Like this mm-hmm. whole, my whole, like I don't, you know, the Four Hundred or the Sam Hain or even the Meat Men. Yeah. It's like I'm over this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it was basically ignoring what I what I did best. And I had to just kind of admit to myself that um, I think the best path to being able to be a musician mm. is to work from my strengths yeah. and get more experience. And Dagnasty was, you know, it was from the, you know, from the get-go, we had a pretty good advantage. Mm-hmm. And... Fortunately, um, you know, we had Sean was a great singer, and the guys Roger and Colin were awesome, mm-hmm. and the band was good. Yeah, and it was cool. Yeah, and and a little a little weird. Yeah, it was. No, definitely. But yeah, it was definitely. I would say. In regards to things from DC that were coming out at that time, it was a little bit had a little again a little bit more oomph behind it than uh, the bands that were the bands that would form in DC, play to their friends, break up, and their record would come out a year later. Right, <laughs> that yeah, kind exactly. of vibe. No, we were definitely. I think that we were a bit of an answer to the Rights of Springs mm-hmm. and the Gray Matters at the time, yeah. where um, you know this sort of you know this sort of primo yeah. uh, thing that was going on. I wanted to. I wanted to play Marshall Stacks, yeah. like and loud yeah. guitar, and there was like, it seemed like, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think maybe I was just a traditionalist yeah. in some way, yeah. and and that's the kind of musicality, you know, and the the type, just the thing I wanted to do was was more related to that four piece punk rock than yeah. than um, sort of the more esoteric, less. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, see, Rights of Spring was incredibly powerful, yeah. and seeing him live was unbelievable. Mm. But the translation to record is something that's just way different than mm-hmm. Nasty. It's a little, uh, it's just, it's way more grown up. Yeah. And it's got a certain naivete that's um, infectious. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to compare the two. Yeah. But, but yeah. definitely, Nasty is a hard band. Exactly. Like these were the bands that actually 
toured the country and put out consistent records. We yeah, wanted to DC. tour the country yeah. and we wanted to make music. And I think, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of the DC thing that the bands were based on the interpersonal relationships of the members. Yeah. But with Dagnasty, I really kind of, when I started it, I mean, I was friends with these guys, but they weren't part of my crew. Mm -hmm. Like, I knew Sean from shows, yeah. and I knew Roger and Colin. These guys were Bethesda guys, mm -hmm. and they're from Bloody Mannequin Orchestra. Like, mm -hmm. I knew them from shows, but this wasn't like the GDS Wilson High School kids. Yeah. And so already I'm like, I think I want to play with these guys because he's a crazy bass player, and yeah. Colin and him have played forever together, and yeah. they, they're really great. And Sean is magical. Like, I just picked out Sean from shows because of just the way he the way he walked mm -hmm. and the way he went like the way he danced mm -hmm. was just like fuck this dude is yeah. serious he was no bullshit and, yeah. but that was picking a band for like I want to I want this band to be strong the, mm -hmm. the band is more important than the individuals yeah. that's the idea here and so when you have a, you know and also that's maybe explains a lot why the government issue and diagnosis lineup changes and scream still kept going yeah. is that the band is more important yeah but I don't change that at all No, I won't change that at all No, not for you, dear I won't change that at all Yeah, and I think you know, going back to what we were talking about before in regards to, you know, all of a sudden in the 83, 84 area where, hey, it's okay to like ACDC or it's okay to like this I think that's a sec, maybe happens a second time in Dag Nasty, maybe towards the end, like the field day era, like would you think like well, yeah, the field era is, um, part of it is that's when I discovered drugs. Oh. I need some sleep today, but there's another man um, So there's a lot of weed on that record, and I'm living in California. And I'm like, you know, it just... Uh, Should have made it a gatefold so you could... Yeah, well, it wasn't, you know, but, but like everything, I was just, you know, I wasn't great at being a stoner. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't do it all day. Yeah. But the, it was, the field day is a product of the environment of the record being made. And mm -hmm. the group of people, Dagnasty was a much different band then. And, um, you know, it, field day... Uh, was an experimental record. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not. I like that record, but I'm, I, I think it, you know what I like it now, <laughs> and I think that there's some strengths. There's some great yeah. songs on it, but there's some songs that aren't, that aren't good at all. Yeah, it's it's a little all over the place. And as exactly. far as like, there's an REM kind of song. There's there's a song that sounds like Robert Cray. Like exactly, like, yeah. and you know why? Because I was really into Robert Cray yeah. and REM. Yeah, and also. Uh, you know, still Bob Mould. I mean, just yeah. like it was all. It was kind of like doing the 400 again, mm -hmm. but but with with pros. Yeah, and a singer who was totally into like a, Peter's a great singer, mm -hmm. and so you have Peter can do all that stuff and have it work. Mm -hmm. um, but that record, you know, I mean, it, they're not all going to be winners. Yeah, and it's a product of its time. After field day, it seemed like Dag Nasty might be coming to an end. Luckily for Brian, a trip to his local convenience store provided him with his next musical adventure. 
And then as far as going into Junkyard from there, yeah, is that something, again, like that was where you were gravitating to as far as music goes or you knew no. people or that was like, or that was like, hey, I want to be a working musician. This is the direction I'm going to go in. Junkyard was really simple. We made the Field Day record and people didn't like it very much. I was living in L.A. and our singer was living, I think, I, I think the tr- singer was... I don't remember the, the situation, but there was a lot of sharing one-room apartments going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. And I think the, Peter didn't live there. He still lived in D.C., and we were basically kind of falling apart as a unit anyway. So we had mm-hmm. this record, and we, we toured on it, and the tours were okay, but just the whole thing felt kind of spent. Mm-hmm. And I was at 7-Eleven getting, like, a Coke... And I ran into Chris from the Big Boys, mm. who looked like a biker, and was mm. like, Brian Baker. It's like, yeah, Chris, what's mm. up? Hey, I'm in this band. We're on Geffen, and we need a guitar player. Literally at the 7-Eleven. Yeah. And I said, oh, cool. I'd love to do that. Just like that. Like, yeah. well, oh, wait a minute. So, and you have to realize at that time in like 1987, 88, having a major label deal was like thought of as the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. Like you didn't, re- you know, now it doesn't mean anything. But yeah. at the time it was like, that's validation. Mm. That's like, you know, th- th- this is this is the rock and roll dream. And, oh, my God, it's the guys from Decry and Big Boys. Yeah. So it's like I already know everybody. Yeah. And when I heard what the music was, it was right up my alley. But also it was it was still compared to a lot of the music at the time. It was a lot more raw mm. and it was a lot less, uh, you know, it was like sort of like a ACDC Southern rock band. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't makeup. Yeah. And it wasn't, uh, you know, the high pitch shit and yeah, any of yeah. that. So. Like you could do it, uh, you know, it, it, it could be pulled off in a t-shirt and jeans. Yeah. So it kind of passed that smell test also. And so I just went and auditioned. I mean, I guess I, I think I was the only one who auditioned and mm. they said yes. And so I called the guys in Dagnassi and said, I'm going to go join this other band. Now. Mm. And that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that went to... 91. Yeah. 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 It was really fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was a crazy experience. And was it? So valuable. And I learned so much about how to be a musician and how to be in a band mm-hmm. and how the music industry works and just everything. I mean, th- these were invaluable lessons and that I still apply today. Mm-hmm. I, I have, I, it was a great time and I have absolutely no regrets. Yeah. Brian was finally attempting a long overdue rest from music, but it was short-lived. Once again, fate would have other plans, and Brian would be presented with some of the largest gig opportunities of his life. 
what happened was I was we were I was in junkyard until we got dropped. Yeah. And at that time, also the band, uh, some of the people in the band were having serious drug problems. Uh, we had no money. Mm. Uh, no one was motivated. Uh, we had basically. I was like, okay, I'm. I don't want to be in this sort of toxic environment playing to nobody mm. in the valley. Yeah. Um, which is kind of, you know, I mean, the last significant tours we did were like opening for Skinnerd mm. all over the U.S. It's like rock and or roll. Yeah. Thank you <laughs> yeah. very much. Yeah. You know, real deal stuff. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm not. No, I no. don't want to do that. And so I said, I'm just going to form my own band. Like mm. I, I was also kind of just the things had changed. I mean, I think that, you know, if you look at the timeline, mm. Um, it was not the best time to, to be, be riding a, in an oh, 80s metal band. Yeah. You know, thanks, to our, just, to, no, thanks to our friends from Seattle. Yes. Um, and I wasn't interested in doing that. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to form a band that sounded like, uh, again, like Bob Mould and Paul Westerberg. And I formed a band called Careless that mm. sounded a lot like that. Okay. And so I, I was doing, I did that band until it was, uh, became not fun anymore. And it mm -hmm. was obvious that there wasn't going to be, um, that we weren't going to make a record or, mm -hmm. or, you know, that there was no major label deal coming. Um, there was no interest from independent labels and we were mm -hmm. just another band. And so I decided to quit music and take a break. Mm -hmm. And I had through the end of careless, I had been in a band of one, one way or another continuously since 1980 without ever stopping. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm going to need, I need to take a break and see what's going on. Maybe get a job. Mm -hmm just do something. And I actually, um, I remember applying for jobs and not getting any. And uh, I wound up working at the rehearsal studio that uh, Careless had rehearsed at. Mm -hmm. I was working there and I think it was, I'd been working there as like, basically I didn't, I wasn't in a band, I was an employee. And about a month into it, uh, Bash and Pop were rehearsing Tommy Stinson's band. Mm -hmm. And Tommy was like, hey, you want to be in Bastion Pop? I'm mm. like, yes. Yes, I do. I mean, it's a fucking replacement. It's yeah, Tommy yeah. fucking Stenson. Yeah. I wanted to be in the band just to hang out with him. He'd already had his first solo record out, uh, mm. the first Bastion Pop record, which is great. Mm. And it was about, you know, basically we're playing shows, playing those songs and new songs that would be for a new release. And then while I was doing that, the REM thing came up. Mm. I got... A, an audition to be a extra musician and I got the job. Um, and so I'm like, okay, well, I guess I can't be in Bash and Pop anymore. Yeah. And this is really cool. I'm going to go do this, you know, back on a tour bus thing with REM, who I totally dug because they're yeah. one of my favorite bands. And this is, this is really great. And I'm still working at this. I'm working at the rehearsal studio. Tommy's cool. He understands why I'm splitting. REM's cool. They want mm -hmm. me to do it. They're not going to start rehearsing for like, I don't know. I don't remember, but it was maybe a month or two. Mm -hmm. So I'm still at the rehearsal studio. And then I get a call from Graffin and Hetson, a conference call, saying that Brett had left the band. Do you want to be in Bad Religion? Bad Religion on line one. Yeah. <laughs> So 
this is what's happening. Yeah. It's all, all of this. It's kind of like the, it's sort of the Sam Hain meet me for hundred quandary. <laughs> yeah. uh, writ large. But yeah, I was yeah, going to say a little different higher, perspective. Higher yeah, yeah, yeah. Perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I remember I was, I, I was, I asked my mom what to do. Mm. And I said, I, you know, I don't know what to do. And I, this opportunity with REM is insanely awesome. And I, but the bad religion thing is way more in my wheelhouse and they want a band member mm-hmm. and I don't think REM's ever going to be a five piece yeah you know and my mom said to go with REM so I chose bad religion there you go yeah. mm-hmm. let's talk about no one please talk about no one someone in your and that's basically what's kept food on the table since then well it's also what's been you know this is that's secondary to the experience. Yeah. I mean, the Bad Religion, um, I've been in the band for 25 years. Yeah. And Greg and Jay are my best friends. Yeah. And the things that I've seen and we've done together and the, just the, it's been, um, I don't know, someone should write a book. Yeah. Bad Religion book's coming out next year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think in August. Is it really? Or yeah, you it's just... called Do What You Want. Cool. And. Uh, Damn. Yeah. Son of a bitch. I'm sure there might be some shows or a book tour of some sort. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Um, um, yeah, it's... Uh, that's cool. You know, so it's really... Yeah, it's... it's you, To have a... You can't... There's so many things that Bad Religion has brought um, yeah. to my life that it's really kind of hard to do it in a podcast. No, I can you know, understand I grew that. up doing it. You know, it, it yeah. changed me from a boy into a man. Yeah. True. Um, and what is the book going to be like... Oh, the book is, um, the book is... Is it like an actual book or is it like... No, it's a book. It's an actual book and it's the story... I mean, like, is it photos, books, blah, blah, blah? No, like, it's like not photo coffee heavy. table. No, it's no, not okay. coffee table. It's not photo heavy. It's a, uh, it is an authorized biography. It mm. is uh, written by Jim Ruland. Okay. Who, uh, he wrote, he wrote the Keith Morris book. Yeah, he helped write that, yeah. And a couple of other, he's uh, been a razor cake writer yeah. forever. Mm-hmm. And so basically Jim did thousands of hours of interviews with mm-hmm. everyone who's been in Bad Religion, which mm-hmm. is like about 112 yeah. people, and this is basically the story of the beginning to now. Wow. And it is, uh, it's a pretty great story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we're 2019. Yeah, there is beach rats, etc. And you know you're basically playing same. Th- uh, you know you're you're playing punk rock. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I'm good at it. Yeah, and um, that's kind of the definition of the kind of job you want. You want to do something you love. Yeah, and that you take pride in. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm good at it. Yes, and it gives me pleasure every time I walk on stage. Yeah, 
And that's why I'm, you know, when I'm not on tour with Bad Religion, that's why I'm doing fake names and beat traps yeah. and all this stuff. It's what I like to do best. And I am grateful as fuck, and I, I am still really not sure how these things align, but this is, this is what I do. Yeah. This is my job. Yeah. Is to have a great time, hopefully making people happy, and playing music. Most definitely. Fuck yeah. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Brian. You can check out Beach Rats at Bridge Nine's Bandcamp page. You can check out Fake Names when their debut album comes out May 8th on Epitaph. And you can check out Minor Threat and Dag Nasty at Discord.com. Don't forget, you can hear the entire interview with Brian as well as all our other guests when you become a paid subscriber to the Substack newsletter. You also get bonus written content from me. Consider it, because we need the money. And, speaking of needing money, if you need any of the three books I have written, you can get them directly from me, signed, when you go to sandpaperlullaby.bigcartel.com. Elliot Muka is a producer of the show. I am Tony Redman. Thank you for listening to this first season of Sandpaper Lullaby. See you again soon. This episode is brought to you by Revelation Records. On April 10th, the band Drain releases their debut album entitled California Cursed. They're from Santa Cruz and they'll melt your face. As they say, Drain is your friend. New releases and reissues coming from Shook Ones of the Great Wet North, World Be Free featuring members of Terror, Strife, Youth of Today, and Chain of Strength, as well as Constant Elevation featuring Vinnie Carana from The Movie Life. You can check it out at revelationrecords.com or revhq.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Sandpaper Lullaby. Sounded like fucking Guy Fieri. Let me try that again. You can use either one of these.